I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's often said that banks are the lifeblood of an economy. In simple terms, they are a place to deposit and save your own money, which then creates a pile for them to lend out to borrowers who put this money back into the economy in some way buying products, investing in education, or in a house. One person's spending is another person's income, as they say. Going way back to the post-war era in the 1930s, it was agreed that deregulation of financial markets would open up the world. Irish banks could borrow without any limit and lend to whoever wanted it. Money would flow, everyone would win, and as it turned out, everyone would lose too. This free-flowing behaviour resulted in a global financial crisis in 2008. Because a banking system is so important to a country, the Irish government guaranteed the main Irish banks and tied us into a bailout programme with Europe, leaving Irish taxpayers with a €48 billion bill. And the Irish people haven't forgotten this, which is why half the bank's work in this country is lending, and the other half is defending themselves from citizens that are paying for their mistakes and from the new kids on the block. We aren't living in a world of AIB and Bank of Ireland in this country anymore. The challenger banks have arrived. Over one million of our residents manage their money online only, the most popular being Revolut. We are at a place where owning our own home isn't affordable or even an ambition for a lot of our young people anymore. And so the dependence on building a credit rating with a pillar bank isn't what it was. Starting and building a business is still a dream for many, but we are still living through the globalisation of finance. Venture capitalists based in Singapore are putting money into Cork-based startups. Yoga studios are being built via crowdfunding. US pension funds are building luxury hotels in Dublin. Dressing up for a meeting with the bank manager and asking parents for an IOU isn't the only option anymore. Brian Hayes was a TD on the side of his constituents when government guaranteed the banks. Now, he's crossed over as a spokesman for the industry. In his own words, there is a road to travel for banking in Ireland. So, Brian, you say that the bunker mentality within banking can't continue. The concept that bankers are in one corner of society and then everyone else is on the other. So what do you think has to be done for the industry to mend its reputation in Ireland and maybe is this a reason that you took on on this role like you know it's quite a challenge well it is a challenge but it's really important it's a really important challenge because I mean um, lenders banks the financial services community more generally I mean we we are the the capital intermediaries we're the capital lenders we're the people who provide the capital 
to make things happen, whether you're buying a house, whether you need a loan, whether you um, are building up your business. So, um, so much of what I think goes for commentary on banking today is very much predicated on the past, what happened 10 years ago and the appalling mistakes that were made. And what I said in one of my opening remarks when I, when I took on this role within the industry is that bankers really have to start communicating with people and talk about the importance of what they do and the confines of what they do because there's been a mountain of regulation and of you know supervision that the public haven't a clue about, which is now a fundamental part of what the banking industry has become since the banking crash. You know, banking union, the supervisory expectations at ECB level, uh, the local, national, central banks of each member state, the European Union. So I think there's a real responsibility on the industry and for bankers, especially in trying to explain to a younger generation of what they do, that they've got to speak about that and talk about it and get beyond what happened 10 years ago. Uh, because with, if, I've, if I've got one thing from the crash 10 years ago, it is that you know, we need to support contrarian opinion. What I mean by that is we need to support people who take a different point of view. Mm. And we've kind of replaced the kind of um, unquestioning role of bankers had with a very negative attitude of bank, the banks today um, without the banks coming out to play and explain what they do. And that's not good for any democracy. It's not good for any proper public discourse to have some predisposition or prejudice about one industry based on what happened 10 years ago. I mean, the people involved in banking today were not there 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So really, that's what I mean about the bunker mentality. The banks have to explain what they do and the important role they play in making sure the modern economies work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I said in my intro that banks have definitely had the opportunity to be of huge help to people who are facing real economic uncertainty right now and a complete loss of income in some places. So give me a sense of how the banks have stepped in to support people here in recent weeks. Well, I think people have seen their incomes imploded. Um, and I think the most important thing that the industry, you know, across the world has done, but I suppose here in Ireland especially, has been the payment breaks that have been established for personal customers, business customers, corporate customers, people with mortgages, people with SME loans, so that there's a, an actual physical break for people up to a, a three or six month period. That's been, I think, a really important cash flow help to people who find themselves in this position. There's a cost to it, of course, because there's a cost to the industry. Uh, there's nothing for nothing. Mm, and yeah. ultimately, uh, people will have to pay back. Um, and that, that's an important issue I've just raised there, actually, because I think it's important. I mean, you know, um, there's a kind of an expectation of banks that that, that they, it can be run on a commercial basis with, with kind of subsidized support. Um, you know, there's no industry in the country that works like that. Yeah, because... Um, I go to my Tesco every week. I, yeah, go, I go to my Tesco every week and no one gives me a butter voucher. You know, I, I pay 160 quid last week on a, my, tele, my television license. No one gives me 10% off that. So wh why should banks be treated any differently? Yeah. And I think that's the point. If we have a competitive industry that's no different to pharma or agriculture or digital or any of the other large industries, why are people expecting banks to be somewhat different when it comes to, to subsidise income support. Yeah. So, like, a lot of the supports that the banks have done the last number of months around COVID have been about direct help on payments, putting support into the branch network, keeping branches open for the, you know, the 26,500 people who work in the sector, 
they've had to reorientate their business around call centres and making sure that there's support for business customers. And I think the industry has played a big role in keeping the economy going, keeping the payment system going, moving on things like cashless payments from 30 quid to 50 quid in the, in the space of about two hours and doing all those things while keeping the lights on. I think it's mm. played a very important role. Yeah, just going back briefly to the, the mortgage breaks that you touched on, like they did cause a bit of controversy. Um, it was all well, in well, line the controversy. that that, that the, the bank shouldn't have charged um, extra interest rates with customers. It was all in line with guidance. They didn't charge it. Yeah, you see, I I think there's a lot of misconception, a lot of prejudice Mm. built up here. Yeah, well, Um, for sure. Yeah, well, set set the the record for sure. So I think it's really important that we we get this straight from day one. I mean, the banks put forward an option for people where their income had imploded to go on a three-month or a six-month payment break. They made it very clear for people going into that payment break that the, the capital and the interest would have to be paid back with accrued interest because that's happened in every other previous payment break. It's no different to what happened before. It's no different. There's nothing unusual about what's happened now. Um, and the banks were very clear about that. The guidance did change from the European Banking Authority after these contracts were signed. But, I mean, I think in fairness to the banks, they moved quickly because their customers very quickly saw their income implode and they had to move quickly. So. Um, I think some of the charges against the banks were kind of more of that kind of deep prejudice than actual an understanding of what the, the industry had to do and the industry had to provide in a circumstance where we're likely to see additional provisioning of about a billion euro this year against loans that go bad in Ireland. So, you know, the debate has to be based on some kind of honest appraisal of what's happened rather than just mm-hmm. mere prejudice. Yeah. And do you think sometimes we're we're quick to forget, especially in Ireland, that banks, as you say, are a commercial business? Well, yeah, even though even though there's a very substantial shareholding uh, by the public, it doesn't necessarily follow mm-hmm. that the banks have to be involved in subsidised lending. Mm-hmm. So if if we're if we're moving to a position whereby we're going to have publicly owned banks, yeah. where they're going to subsidise people, that's a very dangerous position. It, it's it's a legitimate position for people to hold, but that's not the contract that the banks have. The, the contract that the banks have when they were recapitalised uh, was to 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 make to make it turn a profit and to become commercial entities that the state wouldn't run those. Entities. So those, the framework agreement between the European Commission and the banks and the, and the government was that they'd be work, run on a commercial basis. So they, these are PLCs where in some cases there's a substantial public shareholding, in other cases there isn't. And um, they, they cannot be run on the basis of, of political banking. If we want to move to political banking, people need to be very careful and clear what that is. That means politicians making decisions on lending rather than a commercially viable entities doing it. And I think we need to have that debate because otherwise um, the options aren't very clear for people. Mm-hmm. And bank profitability will be hit for sure at the end of this and people's own finances might be less certain, but you know, moving capital is what keeps the economy going. So what position are, are banks taking on, on mortgage approvals and, and business loan approvals? Because Capital does have to keep moving, but then there's, there also needs to be a conservatism as well because people and businesses are in a less secure position. Yeah, so, so um, there's, there's two bits to this. There's lenders and borrowers, okay? And in any circumstance of lending money, the, the requirement is to try to get it back 
and the cost of that credit, the cost of that capital, as you describe it, over a 10-year, 15-year, five years, whatever it is, is factored into the risks about not getting the money back. So we already have about, what is it, um, 5% of all mortgages in Ireland are non-performing loans. Uh, we now have about 10% of mortgages on uh, not being paid as a consequence of the, the COVID situation. So that's up on 15% right now. Then there's another 2.5% of mortgages where no one's paid anything over over two years. That's nearly 17.5%. Mm. You're getting very close to nearly one in five of all mortgages in some way being impaired. Yeah. So like um, the basis upon which lenders and borrowers come to agreements is on the basis of trying to get that money back. Um, so like, I, I understand why, I mean, lenders have to lend. They make their money from lending. But equally, there has to be an understanding of where risks are right now. So we are seeing smaller numbers of mortgage approvals going through. That's logical in a circumstance yeah. where applications are not coming forward. Uh, but I think as the economy recovers, you will see a greater demand for mortgages and a, dr- a greater drawdown of those mortgages. And I think that will take a number of months for that confidence within the mortgage industry to re-emerge. We're beginning to see it. The numbers from May to June have gone up by 20%, and I suspect that will happen in each month over the next four or five months as the economy comes out of lockdown. But, I mean, there, there, there are risks here for lenders, and it's also not lenders' interest to be getting lots of money in a circumstance where there's no capacity to repay it. We're not going back to the kind of madness lending that the banks did 10 years ago. We can't do it because it's illegal to do it. But anyway, there's a responsibility to do prudentially and to do it in a way where there's some sustainability in those mortgages and other things being paid back. Exactly. And banks have the opportunity to actually be a solution here rather than the cause of of a crisis again. You know? Well, I, I, I don't think anyone suggesting that the banks are, are cause of this crisis. No, 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 no. That's what I mean. I mean. They're they're stepping in and they're supporting people with with breaks and and you know with a lot of support in yeah, different and, ways and of I their life. The, I think the the outcome the outcome of the outcome of this has to be still based on solid rules around lending. You know, um, the macroprudential rules, which was the basis upon which all mortgage lending has happened in the last six seven years have created quite a conservative mortgage book in Ireland. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? At one level, it restricts potential lenders from taking out money. But another thing, it also says to those lenders, uh, is it the right thing to do to take on such a huge financial responsibility? So banks are very conscious of their responsibility as lenders to make sure that there are proper credit assessments, to make sure that before a lending decision occurs, that there is you know, a full appraisal of whether or not people can pay that money back. It, like, it is utterly immoral for a bank to be handing large amounts of money to an individual yeah. if they feel that they have no capacity to repay it. And that's why a lot of the new decisions that we've seen on stress testing of mortgage books, on the macroprudential rules, on the role played by the ECB right now in terms of its supervision of much of the financial services industry in the last 10 years has been about reducing risk. The the crisis that emerged 10 years ago was really about the risks and the bubble that emerged. And I think the banking union priority in the last 10 years is really about reducing risks right the way across the system. Yeah. Do you think a crisis, a banking crisis could ever happen here again? Recessions will, but... It could, of course. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course it could, but I think the likelihood is minimal by comparison to what happened 10 years ago. Why? Because the amount of capital in the banks now. So I lend you money. 
not only do I just give you the money over that 20-year period or 10-year period, I also have to keep an amount of capital on my books yeah, yeah, to yeah. make sure that if that loan goes bad, I have the capital to, to offset against it, mm-hmm. what we call provisioning. Mm-hmm. So the rules on capital provisioning are so dramatically different now by comparison to 10 years ago. We had about 6% capital in the banks 10 years ago. We now have an average of about 15%. The liquidity requirements today vis-a-vis 10 years ago, totally different. So mm-hmm. um, we've actually produced a much less riskier banking model in the last decade or so because of the financial cri- crisis. And that means it's probably harder to get money from banks today mm-hmm. in a circumstance where people are more um, risk-averse. Yeah. Has, has that conservatism shown to be a great thing now that banks have had the reserves to dip into now that they can give out capital in, in this pandemic yeah, I, situation? Like I, 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 I think, you know, um, because this is this what, we're, what we've lived through the last number of months has been a pandemic, mm. not, not brought about by financial markets, no, no, but brought no. about by, by, health, by mm-hmm. health, uh situation. The fact that they are so well capitalised, I think will um, buffet the kind of industry now in a circumstance where there will be no profits this year or potentially next year, where the losses will be in excess of a billion euro this year. So if you actually add up the, the, the total value of three of the pillar banks in the moment in Ireland, AIB, Bank of Ireland, per, and Permanent TSB, if, if you got someone to buy the whole thing, lock, stock and barrel tomorrow from the Irish Stock Exchange, it's worth about three and a half billion. A billion will be written off this year in bad loans. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it shows the scale of the crisis that will face the industry at one level. But even if those monies are, are written off this year and next year, because the capital provisioning is so substantial in the banks, I think the banks will be able to withstand uh, the full scale of the economic crisis that's been brought on as a consequence of COVID. Yeah, and that's important, an important message to get across and and something, you know, when we, we don't have so much to be to be hugely thankful for this year like that, it, that is something, you know, th- things could be far worse. And, and as you say, you know, the, the banking system is so essential to the running of any economy. So the fact that that's in good health... You know, yeah, I, I think, I mean, we were talking about borrowings at the moment and lending, but of course the banks do lots of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, they, it's not just, they're not just capital intermediaries. They're mm-hmm. also payment, very complicated payment systems. Mm-hmm. The payment systems underlying each of the banks keeps the Irish economy going. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every time a social welfare payment goes out to a client, it comes through a bank, it comes through a payment system. It comes through, it allows that money to emerge. And, you know, underlying any kind of modern economy, is a very complicated infrastructure of payments, which um, you know you're seeing certainly the digital payment area and other areas of payments are so crucial uh, to a modern economy. So keeping all of that, those things going in the midst of the crisis that we've gone through, keeping the economy open, not with you know making sure that businesses move and platforms from say uh, re- high, high street retail to a digital platform. Mm-hmm. That that requires the banks to allow that to happen because they they effectively have a huge interest in payment systems as well. Mm-hmm. And it's another part of the business that probably is never focused upon. Yeah. Now, payments are one area of fintech, which is yeah. a an area of huge excitement among, among a lot of pe- young people, specifically in Dublin and Ireland. Can you give me an idea of the range of services within fintech and, and why there is exciting career prospects there? Um, I spoke to a banker recently who, who um, 
works in the international banking sector here in Ireland. And they said to me, within five years, 70% of the people who work in that, that particular bank uh, will be coming from an engineering background rather than a traditional banking background. So the kind of revolution that we're seeing in, in payments right, right now, I wonder, what, what is fintech? I mean, fintech is effectively two things that have been merged together, financial mm-hmm. services mm-hmm. on one side with technology yeah. on the other. And we have lots of in abundance of both here in Ireland, and particularly in Dublin. You know, we have a very big financial services sector that employs up on 75,000 people. We have a really big digital uh, tech centre that employs in excess of 120,000 people. And I think as you see those two industries merge, you're going to get this revolution. It's already happening, Mm -hmm. and it's especially happening in the whole area of payments. So one of the really interesting things is how can that payment culture deliver for people and you're seeing it for the Revoluts, the N26s, the Monzos. We've seen digital banks. Now, these are banks that are providing payment solutions to people. They're not necessarily lending money to people because that's a riskier business. But ultimately, uh, you are getting a fundamental change in how banking emerges. So traditionally, your local branch was how you transacted business. Then you had online banking, which the banks provided, kind of revolutionized banking. And now you have your iPhone as your local branch. So I think more and more this is going to be a real area of employment potential, of creativity, an area of future growth within the economy, an area where people are going to have multiple banking solutions. They, they will have, probably still have a, their core bank providing you know, their monthly pay or weekly pay going into it, and then they will have ultimate solutions around that. And I think there's a huge challenge for the banking sector to do more in kind of providing those options to people, particularly to a younger generation. An older generation is slightly more challenged by digital banking, uh, but that's not to say that the, the adaptation and change hasn't occurred within the older generation. It has. But I do think that it's going to lead to a fundamental change in things like branches and network distributions mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. digital banking actually operates on the ground. And I think ultimately it will require um, banks and fintechs to work closer together. They already are, mm-hmm. if the truth be told. A lot of the new services by the banking sector is provided through fintechs. Uh, and, you know, traditionally we had this role that fintechs were in one corner, banks in the other. Uh, in the last number of years, you've seen a much greater collaboration uh, at an industry level within the fintech area. So it's this revolution that's happened has just been, you know, increased to the nth degree because of COVID. And I think, you know, the pace of that change is going to multiply over the course of the next number of years. Do you think Ireland could become a fintech capital of Europe? And what needs to what needs to happen for that for that to happen? Do the tech giants need to stay here? The big banks need to stay here? Does, does there need to be more direct support from government? Like what what needs to happen for for the support to be there? I'm not sure you can say that. I think I don't know. Does that mean anything? You know the what does it mean? FinTech capital yeah. of Europe? I don't know what that means. I mean, uh, probably well, L- London London chain. is doing well. That probably has the the mantle at the moment. Yeah, and probably it always will on the basis that it is the centre, you know, the, the kind of capital centre, the financial services centre of, of our hemisphere, if you like. Um, well, I my, think London's my, also done more. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no please, go ahead. Brexit could be an an example of, of you know, it, that could take banking business from London. So in that sense, you know, if you have, like there's many banks that are... 
And yeah, no, I, your, I think you're right. It, it could, but equally could do the opposite. It could actually provide London with a kind of stimulus to do things in a way that the European yeah. authorities don't allow us to do. Yeah. The sandboxing principle, which fintechs really need, where effectively it's very, very low regulation, where you can experiment within the industry, that's what sandboxing is, has been much more advanced in the, in the Dutch and in the British example than it has been in Ireland. So Ireland needs to be careful about this. I think we, we can't be an outlier when it comes to our experimentation, our more um, proportionate regulatory approach to fintechs. Mm-hmm. And I think the dilemma is it is about scale. London will continue to be the centre, as I said, in our hemisphere, which is you know predominantly bigger than any other centre. Now, over time, the Dutch, Irish, Frankfurt, Paris example will increase. But we also face the risk in the kind of Brexit scenario, that they'll start doing things at a regulatory level that will give those businesses a much bigger opportunity to grow than would be the case in the Mm -hmm. European Union. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we can be too smug about this, that in some way, you know, there are opportunities in Brexit, but either are threats as well. And I think one of the areas has to be around a more proportionate regulatory environment which allows those smaller businesses to grow and flourish and develop. Yeah. Now, there was almost 30 banks that moved to be operationally ready from from London to Dublin after yeah. Brexit. Um, you know, these are globally important banks like Barclays and JP Morgan. Is it obviously this this needs to be celebrated? Like, like can this can they grow side by side with fintech or or is it, you know, should we be celebrating one over the other? Or do you think it's it, it, it all kind of played? They all kind of can work together. I think um, there's a lot of good news for Ireland in this space. I mean, Barclays that you mentioned, Bank of America is another. These are what we call SIs are significant institutions. And these are systemically important institutions. They're also institutions that were looking for a European home post-Brexit. So for their European biz, business, their head office is in Dublin, for the case of Barclays, for the case of Bank of America, and for the case of Citigroup, which is a very significant uh, US yeah, that's, bank that's an incredible. Europe. That's an incredible fact, you know, isn't it, considering, considering the, the weight that these guys yeah. have? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really important. So they have a very strong, well, of course, Citibank were here for 30 years mm-hmm. in advance of the Brexit thing. But, but Barclays and Bank of America chose Ireland over Luxembourg, over Amsterdam, whatever. So it's really important, though, that those businesses grow and develop um, because what they're doing is very important. They also have huge links into the fintechs. I think what you're going to see in the future, I mean, I think at some point Revolut will be bought by a bank. Because Revolut doesn't make any money. Um, the only way they can make money is to shove up fees. And it, once they start shoving up fees, people are going to say, they're going to cop on and say, we're not going to spend the money on revenue. Mm-hmm. So I think the future for a lot of the disruptor banks will be around um, partnership alliances with existing pan-European banks. And I think those pan-European banks inculcating within those bank systems the kind of creativity that those digital banks have will ultimately be the future for those those banks. Uh, Europe is so overbanked, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You know, when you compare the profitability of European banks to, say, American banks, their peers, it's, it's totally different. And it's not just the lower for longer interest rate environment of the ECB. It's also we're overbanked. And we do need more. We, we, we need bigger banks in Europe rather than fewer bigger banks, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think 
you know, if you go to the likes of Germany, Austria, you know, every, every community has a bank, a bit like our credit union system. But the problem is that you do need um, a certain scale at a regulatory level, at a co- conduct and compliance level to move beyond mm-hmm. smaller banks. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if we get on from the COVID situation, if we begin to see interest rates rise and profitability improve, equity, which is, i.e., people having money wanting to invest in banks, that will ultimately improve as well. At the moment, there's an, an equity strike going on in banks in Europe. People think that this overbanked, they, they can make more money on U.S. banks or even U.S. banks based in Europe. So I think ultimately over a five-year period, if you begin to see interest rates rise, you're, you're going to see more mergers and acquisitions of banks across Europe. And I think crucially then you will see a much greater fusion, if you like, between fintechs and those bigger European banks. Yeah, that's a really exciting prospect, actually, for, for financial services in general, you know. Now, I yes. have to address Brexit in, in a tiny bit more detail with you because you were an, an MEP in Brussels throughout the Brexit referendum and all that's come after it. So it has been away from the headlines over the last few months, as yeah. we would expect, but it is still there in the in the background and it's it's coming up fast the end of the year so what what are your feelings at this point and and about the prospect of a a no deal and and all that that might implicate for ireland so the copybook kind of political action up to now has been particularly from boris johnson's government or where he's been a dominant player and even the Theresa may government has been Negotiate, nego- said, pretend you're negotiating. One minute to midnight, you do a deal. Mm-hmm. And we're getting close enough in the next few months to that next phase. So even if you look at any of the kind of agreements made up to now, the framework document, the agreement on the Irish Protocol, all of the, uh, even the, the, um, the decision of the UK to leave and the agreement around that, the transitionary period, all of it was done one minute to midnight. So the question will be on, 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 on the future trading relationship, whether or not we have an extension of the transition arrangement, will that be one minute to midnight as well? Optimistically, I hope it will, because I think it's in everyone's interest to do it. But I think there comes a a breaking point in all of this. Um, We may well get to that point uh, in a matter of months. And I think um, that's a lose-lose for everyone. Everyone needs a deal. Everyone needs a smooth transition. Everyone needs some certainty. And coming as it does so close uh, in relation to the COVID situation, it's it's a really significant systemic risk in Ireland, which we could do without, quite frankly. Now, it won't be essentially played out in Ireland. The real decision-making in this will be UK, EU. We're, we're a small part of that. Um, and I think the, the Northern Ireland issue is now resolved, the Northern Ireland Protocol in terms of previous agreements. That's kind of resolved in terms of it's not central to what we face at the moment. But I'm not hugely optimistic at this stage that a deal can be done. And I think it may well be the case that Britain will float outside of all of our arrangements for a number of years um, until we get back to some meaningful engagement uh, on a future trade deal. Um, They want a big trade deal, but they don't want the responsibilities and the obligations that go with that. And um, until that particular square is circled, if it can be, 
I wouldn't be optimistic of a deal anytime soon. I think we've got to prepare for the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. Well, young people specifically, you know, it's, it sounds like they're getting a hard time of it for sure in the last year. If you think about all of the the, the things that have been thrown at them and, and the fact that the academic year is so uncertain and now there is hiring freezes yep. in so many places. You're a former secondary school teacher many years ago. Is that right? I never really taught. I did the qualification, but I never taught. Look, kids were so lucky they didn't have to have to listen to me for three years. No, I never really taught. No. Well, I'm you know, you have. Never yeah, but you have you have kids yourself, um, so you probably yes, have some empathy to how young people in Ireland might be feeling right now. So, if you think about all of the the challenges that are ahead of them, you know, it's as someone that is at, at this point in your professional life, you know, this could be advice to your own kids that, that you tell them or, or to, to someone that might come up to you on the street. But, you know, having having faced the challenges that you have, you know, as we all have when we get to a certain level in our career and, and having come through the setbacks and recessions and all the rest, what what would what would you say to them? What do you think is the best advice to I'd, take on board? I'd say, I'd say, say three things to them. Um, it's, it's a bloody awful time right now, particularly if you've left college. I met a Met a young guy the other day, just come out for a master's course. He had a job, now it's gone because of what's happened. So um, there's three things I'd say. First and foremost, this thing will pass. Things will improve. You know, if the economy is knocked out by 8 or 9% this year, I'm pretty optimistic it'll come back reasonably by 6 or 7% next year. And the next 12 months or the next 18 months, even though it seems like a long time, will be a difficult time, but things will improve. That's the first thing I want to say to them. The second thing I want to say to them is this. Go off and learn a language or two languages over the next 18 months. We're really poor in this country when it comes to language discipline. And one of the things I learned in my time in Brussels is the importance of being multilingual. And I think as a younger person, the ability to learn language is much better than an older person. And there's an opportunity over the next 18 months to do something in this area, to add on to a qualification you might have. You become much more marketable and much more employable. The third thing I'd say is, one of the best things the government have announced as part of the um, stimulus package is the 70,000 apprenticeship stroke traineeship positions. So even our own organization, we're looking at could we take on two younger people with qualifications in economics and banking and fintechs possibly. Um, and I think the same responsibilities on every other business in Ireland, they have to do the same. So I hope if, if you can get an opportunity of doing a traineeship for a 12-month 18-month period with a bit of language content, I think it'd be a really, really good, useful um, and productive use of your time because, be, you know, things will improve. Yeah. Traditionally, in Ireland, we've had the safety valve of the UK or the United States or other English-speaking countries uh, which have been economically in a better condition to us so there's more plentiful supply of jobs, better labour markets. That's not going to happen this time because everyone's in the same position because of COVID. So I think, you know, for the next 12 or 18 months, try to focus on getting a skill, not for a, you know, a two or three year period, but for a one year period. And I think that could be a real bonus to you when the economy turns, as it inevitably will. Yeah, because the storm will pass. Brian, I just yes, want to, it will. it will, it will. I just want to finish on one vital question that, that we ask people to 
think about in relation to their industry. So it, it might might go back on what we have talked about. But if there is one vital question that you think the banking industry needs to ask itself um, to to move forward over the next while, can you can you think about that? The most important thing, in my view, for for the banking industry uh, to do, because uh, I, I think it, it can obsess itself about trust and legacy and reputation. I, I, I'm a great believer that you just don't walk into Tesco tomorrow or Aldi and go to the you know section on reputation and buy a potion and knock it back and think that's that your reputation is solved. It's not going to happen that way. So the most important thing for the banks to do right now is to be is to be in the here and now to be responding to their customers, to be working on, on a collaborative basis, a non-competitive basis, the kind of changes they need to make for the next number of years, instant payment, shared fraud database, getting systems in place which improve customer experiences. That's what the most important thing that the banks have to provide. They've got to show by doing, and it'll be little and often, but it'll be bit by bit incremental. And I think the reputation thing will, will follow change to an industry. It's a traditional industry. It's a crucial industry. It's an industry that matters so much to the to the lifeblood of the economy and to the success of business and to the you know the future potential of business. But it has to be focused and focused on doing things today and, and rebuilding that culture, that reputation over a longer period. You know, don't pretend that it's going to be solved overnight. It's clearly not. Uh, and and. And my last bit of advice that I would give to the industry is, as I said at the start, you know, you know, this can't be North Korea. You have to speak out where, where there's prejudice against the industry, as invariably there is. You have to speak out against that and take a stand against it. And say it's not acceptable that 26, 27,000 people can be kind of all just exed because they work in the banks. Um, it's not acceptable. And I, I repeat something I said earlier. You know, we we, we don't create a better society, a more encouraging society of dissent, if we uh, simply use industries as punch bags. And there's too much of that with the banking industry right now, and too frequently the banks are not strong enough in defending their own industry and talking about the things that they do. I think if they did that, um, I think that would create more confidence. Well, they have they have a, a great spokesperson in you anyway, fighting the fight. You're very kind. Thanks. <laughs> Brian Hayes, thank you so much for your time. Cheers for that. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. The cross from politician to the private sector is a curious one. To go from being the voice of the public to defending a company from the public can be quite a transition. A great amount of politicians are problem solvers though. They choose that path to get things done. So in a way, it's not such a surprise that Brian Hayes rose to the challenge as a spokesman for the banks. Politics is a relentless flow of problems and matters to attend to. And as I look at headlines about Irish banks loading on extra fees and telling customers it's their own responsibility to protect themselves from fraud, I can think of no better figure than Brian Hayes to fight their corner. And in his own words, it's an industry worth fighting for. Thank you to Sarah Madden, who co-produced, and to Shane at Collaborative Studios. And thanks for listening.
This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.